Welcome to Catalyze. I'm Sarah O'Carroll. We're launching our fall season with J.R. Ching from the class of 2001 and the Chief Financial Officer for Yoma Strategic Holdings. We asked JR to join the show to help us understand the military coup in Myanmar and to hear how his company has managed the ongoing crisis as the Delta variant continues to surge throughout the country. The crackdown after Myanmar's military coup claimed hundreds of lives in just two months. But there are also many unseen casualties of this rapidly escalating crisis. Now, anti-coup rebels made up of villagers, students, young workers, are taking matters into their own hands in an effort to restore democracy. JR, thanks for speaking with us. No, certainly. It's great to be back in touch uh, with the foundation. So typically you're based in Singapore, but because of the situation in Myanmar and the COVID-19 pandemic, you've been in the U.S. Catch us up on the past year and a half for you and what conducting businesses look like. So the last year has been been somewhat of a whirlwind. I usually travel quite a bit around uh, the Asian region, but I think like the rest of the world and like a lot of people, I was pretty much trapped uh, during 2020. So I spent a straight nine months in uh, in Myanmar uh, during the COVID period. And I came back to the States uh, at the end of last year to celebrate the year and holidays. I had planned to return back to, uh, to the Asian region uh, sometime towards the end of January, but I was anticipating the vaccines. Um, so I had actually stayed here for about a month uh, beyond the, the holidays. And that's when the military coup happened in Myanmar on February 1st. So now over the last six months, I've been still stateside, uh, unable to get back into Myanmar. And uh, unfortunately, because of most of those COVID travel restrictions still being up in the rest of Asia, I haven't been able to get back to Hong Kong or Singapore either. So for anyone who hasn't lived or spent a significant amount of time in Myanmar, I think it can be difficult to understand the deep-rooted grievances that really propelled the coup in the first place. Can you help us put the coup into context? The military has actually had a very large role within Myanmar society uh, since its independence from the British in the 1940s. And it was actually Aung San Suu Kyi's father who was the leading general uh, who led that independence movement back in the day. In the 1960s, the military uh, executed its first coup and took control of the country uh, in the 1960s and then ran the country for effectively 50 years until they started that process of transitioning to democracy in 2012, uh, which then culminated in those democratic elections in 2015 when Aung San Suu Kyi and her party uh, were elected into power. But I think we also have to remember that there's always been a delicate balance between the civilian government and the military, even since 2015. Um, And that's because the military actually has constitutionally control over three key ministries. So the civilian government effectively does not control their internal affairs, their border, and their defense ministries. Overall, the military has still maintained a very, very large say in what happens within Myanmar. It has a very, very large interest in the economic structure of the country, meaning it has investments in lots of different companies. It controls most of the extractive sector in mining and and, um, and and timber. So it, it it's always had that sort of role uh, within the country and within the economy. So you can say that the coup that happened on February 1st is very much of a struggle for power between you know, these two different forces. One, an established institution that was losing its grip 
uh, on both power, but also its influence in, in, in where the country was and was headed, as well as those uh, nascent democratic forces that were clearly pushing to open up uh, Myanmar to the rest of the world uh, and engage both economically as well as politically. So we would say that the coup is not something that is ideological. It's not something where you would think that there was going to be uh, a significant change in policy per se, but it's clearly a, a competition and a, a situation where you have two parties that are competing for power uh, of who can actually then control the events going forward. So now that we have this broader view of how something like this occurred, I'd like to return to the days leading up to February 1st from the perspective of your team. How did the company start preparing for disruptions once it was clear that an attempted coup might be in the works? For a week prior to, to the coup itself, we had been hearing some rumblings that the military was just not happy with the negotiations that was going on with Aung San Suu Kyi's Democratic Party and the formation of the new government. And February 1st was the first day of the, the, the new parliamentary session uh, when the government was supposed to be formed. I think most experts and we ourselves thought uh, all of this was just a bit of posturing that the, the military was trying to jockey uh, for a better position as the new government was being formed. Uh, the coup started on Monday morning in Myanmar, which was uh, the evening time here in the States. The first indications that we had came from clearly my managers who were on the ground. I was getting messages uh, on WhatsApp as well as on um, our internal effectively messaging system uh, that there was, uh, let's call it news or announcements that Aung San Suu Kyi had been uh, detained. So that was uh, Sunday evening my time. And, and as you know, it became clearer and clearer that a coup was underway, the first thing that we knew uh, that was going to happen was uh, communication lines were going to be cut. Internet effectively was going to be shut down because that's generally the first thing that, uh, that one of these militaries wants to do is cut the lines of communication so that the population is unable to have full information flows and also prevent any sort of resistance or organization uh, arising. The military did pull the internet down, but they only pulled it down for about 12 to 18 hours, and then they put it back up, which was a very interesting strategy because it then did allow clearly to people start to, to start communicating, sharing on social media, posting videos of what was happening on the ground in terms of the protests and the crackdowns. So we at least were able to start communicating with our staff and our, our people on the ground again um, because the internet did go back up uh, pretty quickly. So knowing that losing access to internet would be a likely scenario, did Yoma have any backup systems in place for this kind of a crisis? We actually had to work very closely with our IT uh, consultants and advisors who uh, were able to create some sort of bilateral link between our office building in, uh, in Yangon and our office building in Singapore using the fiber optic phone lines uh, to be able to at least have some level of basic communications uh, between, the two, uh, between the two offices. And that's effectively how we were able to manage in the event that the internet was going to be kept down for an extended period of time. That's interesting. So in addition to making sure communication structures and other contingency plans were in place, I'm sure you were also already thinking of the impact the coup could have on the many sectors that Yoma is involved in, uh, agriculture, real estate, equipment manufacturing, tourism, and others. What sort of ripple effects did the team project within its investment-focused areas? Yeah, clearly the first and foremost priority was going to be the people and ensuring the safety of, again, all of our staff and, and of course, their families. Um, but I think we knew that this would instantly change the business and investment landscape um, within Myanmar. We as a group had spent the previous eight to 10 years really focusing on opening up the economy, attracting foreign investment, and becoming a partner of choice for a lot of multinationals 
or, um, or investors who were looking to enter into the country. And part of that was also building up the human capital and human capacity um, that, uh, that the country needed. With the military coup and the future trajectories for Myanmar, given where free speech is going to be, ha- you know, going to be headed, uh, given where um, potential sanctions regimes could be could be headed, uh, we knew that this would all be radically, radically different going forward. Um, so I think first and foremost is it, it, the, the landscape is going to change just purely from an investment perspective, but also attracting talent to come into the country uh, for, for you know for years ahead. On the operational side, I think as you rightfully highlighted, we, we do have a lot of different businesses across many different sectors. Um, all of them were severely disrupted for several, several months. Um, so whether it was from the fact that we had to deal with the ongoing street protests and tear gas being fired at those protesters where they were then running into some of our, our restaurants or our dealer showrooms, uh, that was one thing we had to manage. Uh, the other was we had to clearly manage with the civil disobedience movement that the protesters um, came up with where, where effectively they were trying to shut down not just public sector activities and, and asking employees in the public sector to go on strike, but actually trying to extend it to private sector employees in both the healthcare as well as the banking sectors uh, to, to, to go on strike. So effectively creating a general strike which shut down the economy for significant periods of time. All of those various factors really did shut down a number of our businesses, or I should say disrupted a number of our businesses for months and months right after the coup had happened. And of course, Myanmar has also been particularly hard hit by the COVID-19 pandemic, and its healthcare system has struggled to keep up. It seems that the military has been exploiting these vulnerabilities by controlling vaccine distribution, prioritizing their soldiers, and punishing dissenters. What else can you share with us about how the regime has weaponized access to care and the vaccine? Yes, as you, as you rightfully point out, Myanmar has a relatively underdeveloped healthcare infrastructure in the first place. Um, so, so it does rely clearly on the goodwill and the donations from more developed nations. So there was a vaccination effort that started at the end of December or uh, be- beginning of January, where there was a batch of, don- uh, of vaccines that were donated by India to Myanmar on a limited basis. Uh, when the military actually took control of the country in February, that that entire vaccination effort came to a grinding halt. And in a sense, as part of the civil disobedience movement, a lot of the population actually refused to take vaccines from a military administered uh, program, which effectively that's what it became then uh, once once the coup had happened. Uh, so all of those vaccines that had come from India at the beginning part of the year were then were then effectively wasted because they they were not able to be used uh, by most of the population. In this most recent uh, uh, third wave where the Delta variant is sweeping through the country and people are actually quite desperate uh, for any t- sort of solution um, to, the, to, the, to the problem. Uh, there has been a renewed sense of engagement where people are willing to take uh, whatever vaccine they're able to, you know, to, to, to find. Um, so that's an interesting fact that, or I should say a trend that people are actually in this situation actually re-engaging and, and, and looking to see whatever, whatever vaccine they can actually get. Um, in terms of weaponizing COVID-19 and, and what the military has done, clearly they have prioritized oxygen supplies and as well as vaccination uh, supplies first and foremost for uh, for themselves and for their frontline soldiers. Um, so the, the general population is what is suffering because oxygen has been effectively taken from suppliers as well as machines that have been taken from private hospitals and, and redistributed to military institutions or military um, hospitals. So with these major crises happening concurrently, how is the Yoma team strategizing to maintain investors under these increasingly dire conditions? 
I think in some ways we've been extremely lucky. So a lot of our partners and a lot of our investors who um, who came into Myanmar over the last 10 years have uh, effectively shown their support through this coup situation and have committed uh, or, or, or remained committed uh, to investing in the country alongside Yoma Strategic. I think that being said, uh, the, one of the biggest changes is that previously we had clearly been in expansion mode. We've been diversifying across a number of sectors. We had been uh, continuously looking for and seeking new investment partners and new investment. Uh, now going forward, strategically, it looks very much like we're going to be in a situation where uh, we shrink today to grow tomorrow, uh, in a sense. Uh, the, the, the level of foreign direct investment into the country will, uh, will substantially reduce, or it may even become much more focused from Asian countries like China, uh, Thailand, uh, and the like, rather than Western nations coming into the country. But I think one of the biggest effects that we're all going to see, and I, I kind of mentioned this earlier, is the effect on human capital. Um, so over the last 10 years, there has been a significant, uh, re- uh, let's call it return, of Myanmar people who had gone abroad to be educated and to get work experience uh, in other countries. And we call them repatriates uh, back into Myanmar. And there has been uh, clearly that trend where people wanted to come back to the country to help its reopening process to help rebuild the country after so many years of isolation and neglect. And clearly that was something that Myanmar needed, which was uh, it, it needed significant investments in education and really a step up in its human capital and human capacities. And I think that's one of the things that that, that the country is going to see, but also we as a group are going to see going forward is that a lot of people are leaving. They are um, they are going back uh, abroad because the opportunity set within Myanmar is going to be radically different going forward. But also that you know the educational system and 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 the futures, especially for families and 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 for for their children, is is dramatically different in this environment once the coup has happened versus where it was uh, prior to prior to February first. And I think that's probably going to be the biggest change and shift that we're already starting to see, and that's going to permanently affect the trajectory for Myanmar for let's call it the near to medium term. This is making me wonder about if there are any parallels between what Myanmar has experienced and what could happen to U.S. companies. Myanmar, of course, has a very distinct political environment and history, as you've gone into. But a year ago, it'd also be hard to imagine a mob storming our Capitol building. So are there lessons to be had here for business leaders in the U.S. and analogous countries from the perspective of crisis planning and management? It was interesting, and actually, I, I had had a conversation with, with another Moorhead recently on on a topic like this. And yes, there might be some areas where um, the experiences in Myanmar and some of the challenges that we faced might be applicable to to more developed markets, companies, or situations. Um, and let me just give one example. And it was an interesting phenomenon that we that occurred for the couple of months just after the coup happened. And that's where we had a physical shortage of cash uh, in the market. And it was interesting because it wasn't a liquidity crisis within the financial system. In, in a sense, the financial system had uh, sufficient deposits. It had sufficient uh, foreign currency reserves. Um, but it was a consequence of the policies of the government over the last 18 years where there was a push to dematerialize money and really focus on uh, the banking system, interbank transfers, as well as digital payment transactions. So effectively building an ecosystem uh, like you've seen across many of these other Asian countries where you hold and store money and value in, 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 in a digital format rather than actually in a physical format. 
Um, but when the coup happened, there was clearly a panic amongst most people, uh, and they reverted back to wanting to hold physical cash, number one. And two, when the internet goes up and down at various points in time, or when there's a threat that the internet may, may go up and down at various points in time, people clearly can't rely on digital payment me methods and, 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 and systems to be able to transact. And so all of those combined to have a run on physical cash and, 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 and really a shortage of the physical cash supply uh, within the economy. And the discussion I was having with this other Moorhead was that could be interesting for how even developed markets would need to address some of these, let's call it really unprecedented or unparalleled or non-textbook type of situations where, uh, for instance, if cyber cybersecurity or cyber um, issues become, uh, uh, let's call it inherent within the financial system, what would happen if ransomware attacks brought down part of uh, you know, our transaction payment systems, banking systems, et cetera. And how would we all look at functioning um, if that actually did, 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 did happen? And I think these are just some interesting questions of, of where we're able to take some lessons and, and think about, you know, some of the implications and consequences for developed markets and developed countries uh, that we've actually seen in Myanmar that we would have never have thought of or planned for uh, prior to crisis like this. Hmm. So we've been talking about work from the context of the team, of the company, but I'd also like to hear a bit about how you're thinking of the future and organizing your work life amidst all of this chaos. I still have my, my travel plans a little bit up in the air. Um, it, it does look like that Asia might be releasing or, re, or reducing a lot of the travel restrictions uh, in the coming months. Um, so clearly that would that would be beneficial if I can get back into the region at some stage. Uh, but for the time being, it has been a challenge to, to, to work remote here. Um, my days basically start at around 9 p.m. They last until around 3, sometimes 6 in the morning. Uh, depends on when my board calls uh, are scheduled and, and actually finish. Um, but it has been, a, it has been a, a, again, an interesting nine months where I can... Uh, I've had to learn how to manage a lot of crises remotely, in, in a sense. Well, although this has been an extraordinarily challenging time, you've also somehow climbed the equivalent of Mount Everest. Tell us about that experience. Um, this kind of came by a little bit by chance, um, but because I had so much free time during the days here since I was working effectively through the nights, um, in the, at the other part of this year, I signed up for a, an endurance challenge, which was 29029 Eversting. Uh, and there you climb the equivalent uh, vertically of Mount Everest. So you have to climb 29,000 vertical feet in less than 36 hours. Uh, they host the event at a couple of ski uh, resorts around the country. And the first one that they did this year was in Idaho uh, in June. Um, so I competed in that, or I, let's call it, challenged myself to that uh, in, in, in June. And I had to climb uh, climb Bald Mountain 15 times to, to get that vertical equivalent of uh, Mount Everest. So that was something that I guess was able to fill my time during the days because uh, otherwise, you know, I would be effectively just working at night and uh, and, and, and keeping those Asian schedules. Uh, so that was able to, to, to distract me a little bit whilst I was here. Well, that is quite inspiring. JR, thank you for your time and helping us understand what's been happening. No, thanks very much for, for taking the time to do this and clearly trying to highlight some of the issues that, uh, that, that, that we're facing and that Myanmar is going through right now. I know the um, most people probably aren't familiar with the, the dynamics that's happening all the way out there. And clearly the news stories have hit the headlines, but they've kind of faded over the last, um, uh, the last couple of months. Uh, since the coup has happened. It's just always really good to keep some of these issues at the forefront of people's minds and making sure that everybody understands some of the challenges that we're really facing uh, in that part of the world still. We'll really appreciate your insights and I'm sure our listeners will too. Certainly, thank you. Oh, oh, oh.
Thank you for listening to Catalyze. I'm Sarah O'Carroll, and that was J.R. Ching from the class of 2001. You can let us know what you thought of the episode or who you want to hear from next by emailing us at communications at moreheadcane.org or by finding us on Twitter or Instagram at moreheadcane. 